Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Saturday, January 7. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, lawmakers avoid taking sides on CO2 pipelines. This story is by Aaron Jordan. Given how many Iowans are concerned about proposed carbon dioxide pipelines in the state, House Speaker Pat Grassley expects a bill in the 2023 session addressing some aspects of the projects. Would legislation set a moratorium on the use of eminent domain to acquire land for construction of the CO2 pipelines, as some lawmakers sought to do last year? Would it establish safety setbacks for schools or other buildings? Or would Iowa lawmakers go the other direction and erase the permitting process for pipelines or sweeten the pot with state incentives? Grassley, Republican from New Hartford, can't say at this point. The legislative session starts Monday. I would expect to see something from the House's perspectives or from members of the caucuses working together, he said in an interview with the Gazette. I can't tell you what that bill looks like right now, but I would expect that there will be some from some form of something. I know members are having these conversations. Three companies, Summit Carbon Solutions, Navigator Heartland Greenway, and Wolf Carbon Solutions, have proposed building pipelines to transport liquefied CO2 from Iowa ethanol plants to underground sequestration sites in North Dakota and Illinois. Companies that get permits stand to gain billions of dollars in federal tax credits granted because some scientists think carbon sequestration may help reduce the impact of climate change. By reducing the carbon footprint of ethanol products, companies like ADM, Poet, and other ethanol producers hope to make their fuel more competitive in states like California with low carbon fuel standards. Summit and Navigator each have filed for permits with the Iowa Utilities Board, a three-person appointed board that would decide whether and where CO2 pipelines could be built in Iowa. So far, the board has not granted a hearing on either project. Wolf has said it plans to file its application later this month. At informational meetings held about the projects, opponents have far outnumbered supporters. In the docket for Summit's project, for example, there were more than 340 written objections and about 35 letters of support. Primary supporters of the projects have been those linked with Iowa's 40 ethanol plants, economic development groups, or unions whose employees would be hired to build the pipelines. Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance leaders said in August they support the Wolf Project, which includes Lynn County, because to support the agribusiness community of Iowa, we need companies like ADM to be successful. The pipeline projects also have deep political connections, including Bruce Rastetter, a major Republican donor who leads Summit's parent company. Terry Branstad, the six-term former Republican governor of Iowa and former U.S. ambassador to China, who is a Summit senior policy advisor, and Jess Vilsack, Summit's general counsel and son of U.S. Department of Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, a Democrat. 
People who oppose the project's worry about safety after a CO2 pipeline exploded in Mississippi in 2020, sending 45 people to the hospital. Other concerns include a disruption of topsoil and underground drainage tile for farm fields. Many Iowans don't think storing CO2 underground is the best way to reduce the impacts of climate change. But the biggest complaint about the pipelines is that is backers might be allowed to use eminent domain to force easements from unwilling landowners. Both Summit and Navigator have asked the Utilities Board to grant them eminent domain rights. Wolf has not yet applied for a permit, but Pat Brierley, Wolf's Vice President of Engineering, said the company will not ask to use eminent domain. The board that would decide whether to grant permits consists of Chair Jerry Huger of Altoona, first appointed by Branstad in 2015, Richard Lozier of Des Moines, appointed by Branstad in 2017, and Joshua J. Burns of rural Mitchell County, appointed by Governor Kim Reynolds in 2020. Iowa lawmakers interviewed by the Gazette aren't taking sides on the pipelines and have given few clues about possible bills in 2023. Private property rights are a critical aspect of our country and the economic success it has seen for the last 250 years. Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver, a Republican from Grimes, said in an email to the Gazette, The carbon capture pipeline is in the mind of some of our members, Whitver declined to answer three questions. What, if any, legislation would he expect in the coming session regarding pipelines? To what degree does he think Iowans expect Iowa lawmakers to take up this topic, whether in regard to use of eminent domain, citing, or other angles? And if lawmakers do not take up this topic, does that mean you are comfortable with the Iowa Utilities Board making all the decisions at the state level? Whitver said an agreement was made in 2022 to ensure no Iowa Utilities Board action occurred before March of 2023. It's not clear what he means by this. A bill last year that would have prohibited the board from ruling on eminent domain until March 2023 failed. I expect to continue to closely monitor the pipeline's process to ensure the law is followed and the property rights of Iowa landowners are being respected, Whitver said. Democratic leaders in the Iowa House and Senate also are not saying much. Democrats stand on the side of local control and the responsible use of eminent domain, said Senate Democrat leader Zach Walls, Democrat of Coralville. And, you know, my firm belief is that when you're talking about eminent domain, these projects have to be in the public good. House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, said she'd like to have a robust conversation about the issue. I think that it's critical that we have a conversation, the legislature, about pipelines, their use, landowner rights, ensuring safety while also balancing jobs and opportunities that are provided, she said. Representative Chad Ingalls, a Republican from Randalia, is a Fayette County farmer and member of the House Agriculture Committee. He attended an informational meeting for the Navigator Project, a 1,300-mile pipeline that would connect CO2, or excuse me, collect CO2 from the 18 POET plants 
including one near Fairbank in Ingalls District, before sequestering the liquefied CO2 in underground rock formations near Decatur, Illinois. There are people very opposed to it, Ingalls said of the pipeline. Others are kind of ambivalent. Others are strong supporters, even as much as saying, I wish they were going across my land because I heard they pay well. Summit announced in November having signed voluntary leases for 50% of the proposed 2,000-mile five-state pipeline. Ingalls said projects should have more willing landowners for the state to consider eminent domain for the remainder. It would have to be quite a bit higher than that for me to be comfortable, he said. I think at least 75%. The Iowa Farm Bureau, which often has a lot of influence on the Iowa legislature, voted in September to advocate for legislation requiring 90% of land be committed voluntarily before eminent domain is used for energy projects, including pipelines and electricity transmission lines. Also on the front page today, symbol of CR flies high again, this story by Marissa Payne. The city of Cedar Rapids' municipal flag is finally flying high. After Cedar Rapids revamped its municipal flag design, which was previously considered one of the worst in the U.S., the new version rose to the top as one of the 25 best new flags in the nation among a wave of U.S. cities redesigning their municipal flags. Respondents to a survey conducted by a North American Vexillological Association deemed Cedar Rapids' flag, redesigned in 2021, the 22nd best among other new or recently modified municipal flags. The survey also ranked the 25 worst flags. Results are available at nava.org slash 2022 survey. Since 2015, the association reported 312 American cities and towns are known to have adopted new or redesigned flags to represent their communities. The organization represents more than 1,000 flag enthusiasts and scholars. It asked its members and the public to rank the city flags in an online survey from September 1 to November 30. More than 2,800 people participated, rating each flag's design on a scale of 0 to 10. Cedar Rapids in 2019 began the process to design a new flag after the association first deemed the city's flag one of the top 10 worst in the country in 2004, a position it retained in subsequent surveys. In 2015, the city flag was called out in a TED Talk about the importance of flags by American radio producer Roman Mars, a flag aficionado. This flag's design was chosen in 1962 during a contest among local high schools. The artist was Fred Esker, a high school senior that year. City Council member Ashley Venorni, who helped with the flag redesign process, said it took several years to get enough buy-in to pursue a new design, but she thinks it ultimately holds meaningful symbolism and represents the community as a whole, not just city government. It was such a labor of love, Venorni said. What I hope that we can do is have some pride in that symbolism and see that reflected outward more so that it really is a banding together 
and feeling of unity for anyone who feels represented underneath it. The new History and Progress flag is intended to be a symbol of community pride. The blue backdrop represents the Cedar River flowing through the city and splitting at Mays Island. On the left side, the green comes to a rounded point in the center, representing Mays Island as well as the city's green space and recreational areas. The white symbolizes Cedar Rapids homes, businesses, and infrastructure. The white arch represents toward forward progress and Cedar Rapids' future. It forms a border between the blue water and the green field. Also representing flood protection, which protects the community from the river while interacting with it. The white star symbolizes the historic structures of Mays Island, and its five points represent the City of Five Seasons motto. Spring, summer, fall, winter, and extra time afforded to Cedar Rapids residents to enjoy life in all the other seasons. This design emerged as the top choice in an online city survey where 2,624 residents ranked four different blue, green, and white designs to choose the new flag. The designs followed the Flag Association's five design principles. Keep it simple, use meaningful symbolism, use two to three basic colors, no lettering or seals, be distinctive or related. Vinorni said she hopes to push the branding of the flag more to promote its use in the community, and although it's seemingly small, that it can bring a little joy to every Cedar Rapids resident. I hope that this gives people confidence in the process and the rationale why we went through the process and procedure that we did, Vinorni said. Cedar Rapids should be proud of that. Turning now to the Iowa Today page on page 2, Old Marion Library may be demolished. This story by Gray, or excuse me, Gage Miskaman today. The Old Marion Public Library's fate seems to be demolition. The Marion City Council voted Thursday to direct staff to proceed with getting bids for demolishing the old library building while concurrently beginning the central corridor review process that would ultimately approve the demolition of the building. We've been talking about this for over the last year, City Manager Wyan Waller said during the Tuesday work session. The old library was heavily damaged during the August 2020 derecho and lost about 20% of the materials collection at the time. Still today, some parts of the building are boarded up and tarps cover parts of the roof. It's uninhabitable based on the electrical system and utilities are no longer present. Fire Chief Tom Fagan said, we've identified it as not safe to be in the building. The building is not in danger of falling down, but there are outside parts in the right condition that could blow off the building. City building official Gary Hansen said, that's really the biggest danger. Broken windows have been boarded up, but there are items not secure on the outside of the building. Marion had already been operating without a permanent, fully opened library since the COVID-19 pandemic began in March of 2020. After using multiple temporary locations and leasing a location on 7th Avenue for the better part of two years, the new library, which is across the street from the old one, opened in November. 
Waller said doing both processes at the same time takes advantage of the slower construction season and saves taxpayer dollars. We do think this time frame will help us capitalize on slower parts of the construction season, hopefully, and make our taxpayer dollars go further, Waller said. The Uptown Marion Design Committee and Planning and Zoning Commission will review the request primarily based on how the site will be left after a demolition, which includes parking, seating, and access as part of the Central Corridor review process. The Uptown Marion Design Committee is expected to meet February 1st. The Planning and Zoning Commission's review is expected to take place February 14th, with City Council action on February 23. In that meeting, the Council may direct staff to solicit bids for demolition. The cost of the new library came around $18 million. The funding comes from a fundraising campaign that raised $3.3 million. $5 million in local option sales tax funding, and $10 million in general obligation bonds. Around $270,000 in insurance from the old library's damage went toward expenses, including the library collection and building repairs, plus rental fees for the temporary facilities that were used before the new building was opened. Around $652,000 went toward lost revenue. The city still has $381,355 in insurance money, but its use is yet to be determined, Waller said. Also in Iowa Today news, how dry was Iowa in 2022? Let's review this story by Brittany Miller. Drought conditions plagued most of Iowa and much of the Mississippi River Basin throughout 2022, creating concerns for industries like agriculture and river navigation. The review of the year's drought and precipitation trends deems 2022 the 25th driest year on record for Iowa, according to the Iowa Department of Natural Resource Water Report, released on Thursday. But thanks to recent rain and snowfall, 2023 is off to a better start. January is the driest month of the year, but over the last four days, we've received nearly the entire month's worth of moisture, which is encouraging, said Tim Hall, Iowa DNR's coordinator of hydrology resources. Increased rainfall drenched portions of the Mississippi River Basin last year, sending areas like St. Louis and eastern Kentucky into crisis. But in 2022, Iowa stayed relatively parched compared to previous years. According to the Iowa DNR report, the state only received about 27 inches of precipitation throughout the year, just more than 8 inches below normal, based on 150 years of observations. Precipitation was below normal for nine months, particularly during the growing season. The average snowfall from December 2021 into February 2022, was nearly 10 inches below normal. That made it the least snowy winter in two decades and the 23rd least snowy based on 135 years of records. Spring precipitation and temperatures hovered just below normal. By summer, temperatures were 1.2 degrees above normal, but rainfall lagged behind even more, which continued into the fall. The average statewide temperature for the year 
was 47.4 degrees, one degree below normal. That made 2022 the 44th coldest year on record. At the start of 2022, about half of Iowa was experiencing abnormal dryness or moderate drought. Those conditions were only exacerbated throughout the year, making the state's third dry year in a row, according to the Iowa DNR report. Severe drought crept into northwest Iowa by March, yet spring left most of the state in near-normal conditions. During the summer, however, large swaths of moderate to extreme drought spread around the state. Northwest Iowa experienced exceptional drought, the most severe of drought starting in September. This is only the second time such conditions have appeared in Iowa. The first time was during the 2012-13 drought. Drought designations peaked November 1st when 10% of Iowa experienced extreme drought, 34% severe drought, and 44% moderate drought. The most intense period of drought in Iowa within the 21st century occurred the week of September 2012, when exceptional drought affected 2.5% of the state. 2012 is the 19th driest year on record. In July, state officials discussed developing a drought plan that would include a trigger point to call for precautions, such as water rationing. With less precipitation from above, state stream flows and shallow aquifers were depleted throughout 2022. The year started off with above-normal average stream flows, even getting bolstered by spring runoff, but by the end of the year, they had declined to below-normal conditions, particularly in parts of northwest Iowa, which will remain a concern in 2023. Water levels in many of the state's aquifers, which some municipalities and private wells pull from for drinking water, declined, including those around lower Iowa and Cedar Rivers. By the fall, various well and pump contractors reported that they couldn't meet demand for drilling new wells and dropping well pumps deeper into existing wells, according to the report. However, by the end of the year, groundwater levels across most of the state began to recover, thanks to increased precipitation over the past two months. And soil moisture, which dropped between July and November, is also off to a good start this year. The above-normal moisture in the last months of 2022 is good news, but the deficits for the year are still significant, said Hall of the Iowa DNR. We need more moisture throughout the winter and spring months to make a significant impact on drought conditions in Iowa. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial today is a Bloomberg opinion titled, Republicans Have Power But No Plan. This is from Wednesday's Bloomberg Opinion. Say this for the new Republicans in Congress, they made history. Now they just need to start making an agenda rather than stumbling onward in discord and disarray. For the first time in a century, members of the House of Representatives failed to elect a speaker on the first ballot. Nineteen Republicans voted against their party's leading candidate, Representative Kevin McCarthy, leaving him 15 votes shy of victory. The Democratic Party's unanimous choice for the job, Hakeem Jeffries, secured more votes than McCarthy. There's nothing wrong with multiple ballots to elect a speaker, per se. 
if a party is torn between competing leadership factions, a speaker's race provides a good forum for the debate. In this case, however, all of Congress was held hostage by a small group of right-wing extremists who have spent weeks extracting concessions from McCarthy that will make governing a closely divided House nearly impossible. A more prudent leader in such a situation might have asked moderate Democratic lawmakers for their votes, thus avoiding this mess and laying the groundwork for a productively bipartisan session. McCarthy ruled out doing so early on. This also explains why McCarthy has had so little to say about a freshman GOP representative named George Santos. Santos was elected on a resume that was a lie from top to bottom one of the most brazenly fraudulent cons ever put over on the voting public. He simply made up his family heritage, educational background, career achievements, and just about everything else. Credit Long Island's North Shore leader for digging up a scandal that the rest of the media missed. These kinds of distractions are what happens when a political party effectively ignores public policy. After a campaign in which culture war issues took the place of an actual governing agenda, and in which the GOP nominated numerous candidates who were clearly unfit for office, House Republicans have found themselves in power without a plan. Agree or disagree with House Democrats, at least they knew what they wanted to accomplish while in office. There's no shortage of pressing issues facing the country, and there's no shortage of good ideas for addressing them. No matter who is elected Speaker, Americans need Republicans in Congress to come up with an agenda that doesn't look like it was drawn up to protect scoundrels and swindlers. And again, that's a Bloomberg opinion reprint. The syndicated columnist today, John Blumenthal, I bought a Tesla. Now I'm embarrassed. A few years ago, I bought a used Tesla, not because I'm a car nut, but because I had been a hypocrite. For years, I had been outspoken about the dangers of carbon emissions, yet at the same time, I was driving an old gas-powered heap that got about 25 miles per gallon and sounded like a rocket launch every time I turned on the ignition. The car was impractical, but it had sentimental value. My environmental activist friends were not impressed by my assiduous urban composting, LED bulb installations, and energy-saving appliances. I needed to do more to diminish my carbon footprint. The icebergs were melting, my friend said, and at least one polar bear was wandering around homeless and hungry because of me. Many insisted that Teslas were the best for the environment. Pricey but worth it, so I made the leap. Someone once said, Teslas are smartphones on wheels. So for an adult like me who suffers from technical issues, sitting in the driver's seat for the first time was like trying to master calculus after failing algebra. Where was the ignition? How do you make the thing move? What's a fob? It took a few weeks to figure out the essentials, but I started to feel some real affection for the car's sleek design and bells and whistles. Because of the recent revelation of Elon Musk's political views, all of which I abhor, I'm starting to worry about what sort of political statement the car is making. When I bought the car, I had no real opinion on Musk's somewhat clouded political beliefs. Now that Musk has apparently swung to the far right, 
banning journalists from Twitter while reinstating neo-Nazis, I'm horrified to be associated with his brand. What is Musk up to with his acquisition and destruction of Twitter? Publicity? Political power? It's certainly not a financial strategy. If there's one demographic that is unlikely to buy a Tesla, it's the anti-science voices he's been cozying up to. Musk has turned Twitter into an unsupervised playground for random hate mongers and wackadoodle QAnon followers, embraced everything Trumpian, and responded tepidly to Kanye West's outrageous flirtation with Hitler. Given Musk's political descent into the dark side, I wonder whether I should sell my Tesla as a form of protest. How would that adversely affect Musk? Not at all, really. The sale of a used Tesla would hardly cause a blip for the company. Even if I were part of a vast movement, and many other politically aware would-be Tesla owners opted for other, newer EVs, would a blow to Tesla stock really change anything about Musk's politics? How many people would lose their jobs if people stopped buying Teslas? I don't know whether to sell, but I do know that I'm just as just not as comfortable driving it anymore. It's a beautifully designed car with no carbon emissions, and initially I was proud of owning it and being seen driving a vehicle that displayed my concern for the environment. But I'm a liberal, and if Musk's politics don't change radically for the better, driving a Tesla will become, at least for me, as hypocritical and untenable as driving a gas guzzler was. And that column's by John Blumenthal, who is a former magazine editor. He lives in Santa Monica and wrote for the L.A. Times. One community letter today is titled, Truth is Suspended by the Gazette. The Deceptive Gazette is not a newspaper anymore. It doesn't cover massive, important national news stories. It has concealed the story surrounding the open U.S. border for two years. Under the Biden administration, Mexican cartels control the border. They are making billions from human trafficking of economic migrants and drug smuggling. Four-plus million economic migrants and a million got getaways, gotaways, excuse me, criminals, cartels, and smugglers have crossed the border since January 2021. Twitter is releasing files that clearly show the FBI and Democratic activists conspired with Twitter to cover up news during the 2020 election. Not a peep from the Gazette showing that the FBI met weekly with Twitter and even paid them to hide stories about the Hunter Biden laptop and facts about issues with COVID. The Deceptive Gazette has gone way, gone way away from journalism with accurate, factual, and unbiased reporting, and that's submitted by Gary Ellis from Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS today. It is Saturday, January 7. Now let's turn to today's obituaries, first beginning with the short notices from Cedar Rapids. Marlene J. Croats Dostal, 73, died Friday, January 6th. Papich Cuba Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. In Decorah, Joanne Marie Lillehammer Slowey, 90, formerly of Richland Center, Wisconsin, died Sunday, January 1st. Helms Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Decorah. 
in Iowa City, Sally I. Blackman, 83, died Thursday, January 5. Powell Funeral Home in Wellman is in charge. In Tipton, Randall, known as Randy Lee Borman, age 61, died Thursday, January 5. Fry Funeral Home, Tipton. And in West Branch, Carolyn Joe Carney, age 83, died Thursday, January 5th. Henderson Barker Funeral Home, West Branch, is in charge of arrangements. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Mechanicsville, Everett R. Walshire, age 87, passed away Thursday, January 5, at Mechanicsville Specialty Care Center. A funeral mass will be held on Monday, January 9, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Mechanicsville. Father Richard Okuma, officiating. Visitation will be held at the church on Sunday, January 8th, from 3 to 6 p.m., with a rosary service at 6. Burial will be in Rose Hill Cemetery, Mechanicsville, with military honors. In Tipton, Randy Borman, that's Randall, known as Randy Borman, age 61, passed away with his wife by his side Thursday, January 5. Fry Funeral Home will host a visitation Sunday, June, excuse me, Sunday, January 8th from 2 to 6 p.m. On Monday, January 9, a funeral service will be held at First United Methodist Church in Tipton, and that will begin at 10.30 a.m. Randy will then be laid to rest in the South Bethel Cemetery, and immediately following the graveside service, family and friends are invited back to the Methodist Church for a luncheon. You may uh, read send condolences online at FryFuneral.com. In Austin, Texas, Travis R. Girotek, or Girotek, age 49, passed away November 22nd. Services are planned for a later date. He was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and worked in finance for more than 20 years. In Norway, Donald C., known as Rasty Elliot, age 102, passed away January 2nd at Living Center East in Cedar Rapids. He was preceded in death by his parents and his wife, Dorothy. Graveside services is at 10.30 a.m. Monday, January 9, at Oak Hill Cemetery in Norway with military honors. Online condolences can be sent to newhousefuneralservice.com. The Brosh Funeral Service of Norway is assisting the family. In Robbins, Craig Martin Cadlick, age 68, passed away Thursday, January 5, at his home, surrounded by family. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. on Monday, January 9, at the Brosh Chapel on the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. There will be a 7.30 p.m. parish vigil. Funeral Mass will be at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 10th, at the St. Pius X Catholic Church. Private family inurnment will be at a later date at St. John's Catholic Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Brosh Chapel is in charge of arrangements, and the family would like to extend a special thank you to the staff at UIHC Mercy Medical Center, the Hall Perrine Cancer Center, and the Hospice of Mercy for their loving care during Craig's journey.
From Point, Oregon, Anthony, known as Tony Willett, age 35, formerly of Cedar Rapids, passed away Friday, December 30. A celebration of life will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. Sunday, January 8th at the Eagles Club in Cedar Rapids. In Cedar Rapids, Richard, known as Dick Donalds, age 82, died Wednesday, January 4. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Monday, January 9, at the Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. A celebration of life with burial at Oakwood Cemetery in Shellsburg, Iowa, will take place in the spring of 2023. Memorials may be directed to the family for a fund to be established. You can share your memories at MurdochFuneralHome.com. In Ankeny, Herbert J. Knudton, Jr., age 81, passed away January 5, at home, surrounded by family and friends. A funeral service will be held at 12 p.m. Tuesday, January 10th, at Holy Trinity Lutheran, 517 Southwest Des Moines Street, in Ankeny. Visitation will begin at 10.30 a.m. Memorial gifts may be directed to the Alex and Allie Foundation in support of young adults with autism and other developmental disabilities. Sincere thanks to the team of caregivers from Home Instead and St. Croix Hospice. Ankeny Memorial is in charge of arrangements. From Iowa City, Thomas Howard Baldridge, age 92, died January 3. The cause was complications of dementia. A memorial mass will be celebrated at 10 a.m. Thursday, February 16th at St. Mary's Catholic Church with Father Stephen Witt officiating. A light reception will follow the service. Tom donated his body to the University of Iowa Deeded Body Program. The family would like to thank the VA Medical Center where he was warmly and expertly treated for 20 years. Online condolences can be shared at lansingfuneral.com. And lastly, from Iowa City, Mary Ann Foltz, age 76, passed away December 28th at her residence. Per Mary Ann's wishes, cremation has been accorded and private family services will be held at a later date. Memorials may be made to the Iowa Raptor Project or the Iowa City Animal Care and Adoption Center. Condolences can be shared at lensingfuneral.com. Turning to the sports page, in high school wrestling, this story by K.J. Pilcher, Kurtz takes the latest match versus Park. Iowa City High's Kale Kurtz and Linmar's Braden Park have developed an entertaining rivalry. The pair have faced off five times since the start of last season, with each match decided by three points or less. There's a possibility for a few more meetings this year. Their latest meeting highlighted the top 10 duel between the Lions and the Little Hawks. Kurtz avenged a loss to Park from earlier in the season, and top-ranked teammate Gabe Arnold took down number 2 Tate Nakdeboren in another marquee matchup. But Class 3A, 4th-ranked Linmar rolled to a 49-21 victory over number 9 City High on Thursday. Number four, Kurtz claimed a 6-3 decision over number three, Park, at 132 pounds. 
Gave me a lot of confidence, Kurt said. I know I can outwork better opponents and finish my shots against them. Park won two of three matches last season, winning the third place match at the 2022 state tournament. He also posted a 5-2 decision for third at the Dan Gable Donnybrook in December. Kurtz made improvements from the previous bout. I think better preparation, Kurtz said. That first match I got a lot of shots but didn't finish any of them. This match I was able to finish. Kurtz surrounded, or excuse me, surrendered the opening takedown and trailed two to nothing after the first period. The match flipped in his favor thanks to a four-point move in the second. Kurtz cinched up a cradle from the neutral position, notching a takedown and rolling Park to his back for a quick two-point near fall before time expired. An escape pulled Park within one in the third, but Kurtz secured another takedown in the final minute to seal the deal. Once he started wrestling the way he needs to, wants to, and how we want him to, he started winning that match, City High coach Corey Connell said. I thought he did pretty well most of that match. And in sports of area interest today, in boys wrestling, Xavier and Marion are at Linmar Invitational today. Iowa City West Invitational is at 9 a.m. Jefferson, Washington at Benton Community Bobcat Invitational. Prairie and City High are at an Ames Invitational. Liberty is at an Ottumwa Invitational. And Regina is at Highland. In girls wrestling, Linmar and City High are at an Anamosa Tournament. Kennedy, Marion, and Prairie are at the North Scott Invitational. Burlington plays at Washington in boys basketball. In girls basketball, North Scott is at Xavier. And in swimming, Iowa City West is at Linmar. West Des Moines Valley is at Washington. Kennedy and City High are at Dubuque Hempstead's Invitational today. Jefferson is at Des Moines East Invitational. And in hockey today, Madison is at the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders at 7.05 p.m. Turning to the living page today, here are some things to do. It is magic and mystery, Mardi Gras and carnival traditions. All over the world, carnival celebrations take place leading up to Ash Wednesday and Lent. This exhibit features Czech and Slovak carnival masks and costumes. That takes place from 9.30 a.m. to 4 at the National Czech and Slovak Museum and Library. Cost is free to $10. Occupied Wounded Knee, 1973, is uh, an exhibit that is taking place at the History Center, 800 2nd Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. That cost is $7. Takes place from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., This exhibit commemorates the 50th anniversary of the 1973 occupation of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, and the trials that followed. Explore the connections to Lynn County through the trials of AIM members and the role Cedar Rapids played in the outcome of negotiations between indigenous people and the U.S. government. At the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art, Chungi Chu, Visionary. This exhibit is a celebration of the work of Chungi Chu, a jewelry maker and metalsmithist from Incheon, South Korea, who is Professor Emerita at the University of Iowa. 
where she taught jewelry making and metal smithing from 1968 to 2015. That cost is free to $10. Never Forgotten is an article in the Living section by Elijah Decius. From July 2019 to 2022, the number of people who were homeless and living on the streets more than tripled to 107. But that's only a count of the living. The 30 people who were homeless who died in 2022 may not have been seen or heard often in life because they lived on the street. But on Wednesday, they were seen and heard by the living who knew them. Those who become homeless are often unseen and forgotten. But tonight and going forward, we must see each other, said Stephanie Munsterman, executive director of the Cedar Rapids Civil Rights Commission. Let's remember we do belong to each other. We are connected to each other and we are responsible for one another. Though their voices have been physically silenced, each person was honored with their name read aloud and their memories replayed through the ones whose lives they touched most at the Homeless Persons Remembrance Day Memorial, hosted by Willis Dady Homeless Services in partnership with the Cedar Rapids Civil Rights Commission. For those who knew Lisa, the nature of the tribute was fitting. She was not quiet ever, said Jennifer Tibbetts a civil rights investigator for the Civil Rights Commission who knew her well. She would always help with finding the words and finding the way to capture the true feeling of everything we experienced. Lisa was the epitome of resilience, always able to offer captivating words. She always saw the silver lining or lesson in her challenges and spread that wisdom to ensure nobody she knew would have to go through what she went through. Still, she never lost sight of dreams, the possibilities of what could be. Then, one day, Tibbetts realized Lisa's voice had not rung in her ears for a while after her summer death. The memory was the only thing she had left. With 29 others like Lisa honored in Cedar Rapids, that's become more of a norm for those who know people living homeless. It's become a lot more noticeable, Tibbetts said. After reading a list, she said, she was, or she said, was longer, excuse me, than previous years. Today, Lisa lives on through her one lesson to never hold back from speaking what's on your mind because you don't know if you'll have the chance to say it again. Hector Perez, for Meredith Crawford, a community engagement librarian for the Cedar Rapids Public Library, it was hard to sum up Hector Perez in one sentence. I don't know that I've ever met someone who had tried harder at working through their challenges and barriers while trying to bring other people along with them, she said. The Hiawatha man went missing in December 2021. His body was found in March of 2022. He was 41. Hector had a lot of challenges in life, but to Crawford, he was the one she would go to church with through nature walks every Sunday and the one who played Pokemon with her kids at their home. The loss of people like Hector speaks up, she said, until those they greet every morning at the library doors realize how long it's been since they said, Good morning. You realize what a place these people who might know who you might know on a first-name basis have in your life, Crawford said. Those who knew him best called him Superman on the notes they left next to his candle at the memorial. For others, the event was more than a chance to think about those who have died, 
it was a catalytic reminder to tend to the living, too. Let's stop this. Let's these be the last people who die in the streets, said Daniel Reed, an advocate for the homeless who has been working with those on the streets and in encampments since 2015. I do what I can, but I'm only one person. It takes a community to end this. Dogs get better treatment than humans. Where's the no-kill shelter for humans, he added, because from those candles I see it sure ain't here. Recent updates from Willis Dady staff estimate that the homeless population living on the streets has continued to grow since the last count in July. Housing is the answer to homelessness, advocates say. While housing is a human right, it also is a prerequisite to many human rights, said Munsterman. Employment, health care, safety, schools, social services, and more. We must honor their lives by working to provide solutions to end homelessness. We grieve their passing, and we let their memory drive us forward from a long, dark night into a brighter and more hopeful tomorrow, she said. Let us show up tomorrow as well. Turning back to the Iowa Today page, this story is by Clark Kaufman from the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Possible cyber attack leaves some public data inaccessible. A computer system used by some of Iowa's county recorders, including Lynn's, appears to have been hacked over the holidays and has yet to be restored to full operational status. Iowa's county recorders maintain land records, issue marriage licenses, and register births and deaths. They also issue titles and liens on boats, snowmobiles, and ATVs. The biggest immediate effect of the apparent hack is that the public, as well as the recorders, can't currently access real estate records in the affected counties. It's not clear how many of Iowa's county recorders are under contract with COT systems, which was the victim of a suspected cyber attack shortly after Christmas. The Ohio company offers document hosting services to government agencies in at least 21 states. Iowa counties that are known to have used at least some of COT system services include Lynn, Dallas, Scott, Alamakee, Blackhawk, and Jasper. The Lynn County Recorder's Office, which uses COT systems to record real estate and transactions, and to search previously recorded records, currently can't record or view any real estate documents, the office said. The office still is able to process passports, vital records, and other transactions, like hunting and fishing licenses, through the Iowa DNR. Lynn County Recorder Carolyn Siebrecht said COT Systems told the office there is no evidence that customer data was taken from the hosted environment. Ultimately, there is no updated time frame when business will resume. However, we receive end-of-day updates from COT Systems as they work to get our data back online as soon as possible, Siebert said. Once we have access to our software to record, we will work quickly to get all documents recorded. Polk County uses some of COT Systems software but doesn't contract with COT for hosting the county's records. As a result, it has been unaffected, according to Tom Brogan, Polk County's first deputy recorder. Johnson County also was unaffected, said Johnson County recorder Cam Painter. COT Systems is the county's vendor for indexing, 
search and retrieval of recorded documents, but all records are processed, stored, and archived on hardware in-house, Painter said. We are processing all recordings as normal and are up and running with no disruptions here, Painter said. We are receiving regular updates on any changes in status on COT's end as they move to conclude their investigation and restore full services. Dallas County, however, does have its document hosted by COT. Dallas County recorder Renee Arnold said that the company recently notified her of the attack and hack. I don't know anything about what happened or any of the details, she said. Their system was compromised, but how far the hackers went into their system, I have no idea. They're not giving us that information. She added that COT Systems has informed her office that the FBI is involved and is investigating the matter. Other news sources have reported that COT Systems informed all of its government customers on December 26th of the attack. COT Systems provides public records management services for more than 300 government agencies in the United States. The company helps those agencies record and archive documents while also making them searchable and accessible to members of the public. This article first appeared in the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Finishing up with the weather, our mild trend is to continue. So far this month, every day but Friday has been above normal for our high and low temperatures. As far as we can discern, that trend should generally continue into at least the midway point of the month. Our current forecast keeps us above normal for highs and lows through the rest of the nine-day period. That would take us right up to the 15th, meaning we would clear half the month with only one day falling below the normal line. Contrast this to the end of December when bitterly cold air settled in before Christmas. We are looking for a high today in Cedar Rapids of 30 and a low of 17. High tomorrow of 34 and a low of 20. The normal high for today is 28 and the normal low is 12. A record of 55 degrees was set in 2003. A record low of 27 below zero was set in 1910. Sunset tonight is at 4.52 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.34 a.m. That gives us 9 hours and 17 minutes of daylight and we are in the full moon phase with moonrise at 5.24 p.m. and moonset at 9.06 a.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Saturday, January 7. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening, and have a great, safe day.